Well, after 66 sermons, including an introduction to our series, spread out over two years, our um, sermon series looking at the Bible book by book, one book each sermon, comes to an end this morning as we look at the final book of the Bible, the final scripture given by God to His church, the book of Revelation. Uh, from the outset, uh, we have to say that as we prepare to look at this book this morning, over the years there have been some pretty crazy ideas about how to read this book, about how to understand it, about how to apply it to our lives. And I think that usually uh, that lack of understanding comes down to one central thing that people miss. This isn't the book of revelations, as we sometimes say. It is one revelation. One unveiling of God's truth and the spiritual reality that stands behind how we go about our lives each day. That's what the word revelation means, a revealing or an unveiling. And it's here that people tend to go off the tracks because the book of Revelation is primarily not about the end times. I know we think that and it has something to say about the end times, but that's not its primary purpose John is clear that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the very opening words. That means He is the focus of this book of the Bible. It is an unveiling, an unfolding, a revealing of His glory. And when we forget that, we not only miss the point of the book, but we also often fail to correctly interpret it. Every chapter, every paragraph in this book is written to tell us either directly or indirectly by description or by contrast something about the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. So when you read this book, you shouldn't be reading just to find out the identity of the Antichrist or what happens to Israel or what 666 means or to come up with a series of charts and graphs about the end times. It's not that we shouldn't think about such things. It's that that's not the point of the book. When we come to the book of Revelation, we should be seeking to see the glory of Christ. We should be seeking to see Him as the triumphant Lamb who was slain and is now ruling as the sovereign Savior King. That's what this book is all about. It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, though, it is the culmination of all that we have seen in the rest of the Bible. The story that God has been writing through His Word, the story that God has been bringing about by His sovereign grace is a story that finds its purpose ultimately in His glory through the salvation of sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as the Scripture's final testimony to the story that God has given, we see both the highest heavens as well as the lowest and darkest hells. We see all of history from the view of Almighty God in heaven, even as we understand better the spiritual realities that stand behind the everyday nitty-gritty of life that we experience. Thus, this final revealing of the glory of Christ is meant to build up and support and drive the people of God to continue in faith as they seek to continue to fulfill the mission of God, even in the midst of incredible wickedness and difficulty all around them. Now, how does it do that? How does it, how does it have that kind of effect on the life of the church? It does that by holding up a vision of Christ that is so beautiful, so glorious, so compelling, so satisfying to our souls that if it is seen and believed, not just understood, but believed, that it is true, then we will find our love of the world will shrivel up and die. 
and our commitment to the idols of our heart will be broken and ground to dust. Uh, and the, our own trust and our own strength will be shown foolish and futile in its efforts. And the smoking embers of our love for God will be stoked into a passionate flame of unyielding zeal because we will see Him and we will trust Him and we will come to believe that He is our greatest treasure. And in doing so, He will become the object of the deepest affections of our love. We will believe His words that our life depends on it and we will serve Him with unending joyful obedience. In short, we will come to live as the people of God that God wants us to be, that He has called us to be. That's what we want to see this morning. That is the effect that we want this book to have on our hearts even now. now. Obviously, we don't have time to go through the entirety of this book. We will save that for a later sermon series. Nevertheless, in order to, to capture a, a sense of this great vision of Christ that has unfolded the whole book, we want to look at one central passage the, uh, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And so we will read this now, and I will then begin to unpack this that we might again see the glory of Christ. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Blessed be its reading this morning. From this text, I want us to see three themes that run not only in this passage, but throughout the whole book that seek to draw our focus up to Christ Himself. And as we seek to understand these three themes, we want to, again, be confirmed in our belief to, to have our faith run more deeply in the reality that Christ is the eternal King so that we can more deeply trust Him and live for Him. So the first theme that we see, not only in this text, but throughout the book, is this. Christ knows the situation of His people. Christ knows the situation of His people. As the passage begins, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
Well, that already says a lot about why God gave this revelation to His people. First of all, we're given the situation of the, the one who recorded this vision, John himself. He's on the island of Patmos. Now, what, where is that? What is it? Well, Patmos is a nice little place, about 24 square miles, about 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus, as described as being a rocky crag, rugged with volcanic hills. Not exactly the place you're going for vacation this year. But more than that, it had a Roman penal colony there. That's where Rome sent its political prisoners. And basically that's it. Aside from a uh, small group of pagan population that worshipped the false goddess Artemis, the main thing there was this, uh, this prison for Rome's political prisoners. But John wasn't there for Artemis and the worship of this false goddess. He was there for Christ. John is about 90 at this point and he says he was banished to that island in verse 9 because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was a faithful witness to his Lord and Savior and the result was a banishment from God's people from the empire to Patmos. And John's experience of persecution, of suffering for the sake of Christ was not unique to him in that day. In fact, what was once provincial and isolated persecutions for God's people had now become more widespread, more pervasive, more official across the whole of the Roman Empire. But again, this is not just the experience of the first century church. The book of Revelation is filled with descriptions of the church suffering from this time even until the end, led by the designs of Satan himself seeking to stamp out the church. And some of these sufferings even lead to death, the death of God's people as martyrs. In fact, one of the most sobering passages in all the Bible, not least of which in the book of Revelation, comes in chapter 6. It follows chapter 4 and 5 where John is taken up, as it were, in a vision to heaven itself and given a glimpse of the glory of God in his throne room. And there, Jesus the Lamb is found worthy to receive the scroll of God's plan for the ages. And he begins breaking its seven seals, in effect, bringing about uh, the will of God for the ages. The vision continues into chapter 6 and John says this, When Christ opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Think a minute for that last sobering line. There is in the mind of God a complete number of believers who will suffer death, who will experience martyrdom for the sake of Christ. It's not just happenstance. Before the end comes, there is a certain number that has been ordained to bear witness to Christ by their death. Now, the realization of that should cause us to do a couple of things. Number one, it should cause our hearts to be united with the global church because that's where this is often taking place. Uh, very rarely, if at all, do you ever have someone in this country or even this continent killed uh, because of their faith in Jesus and yet it happens 
all the time around the world. It's also in those places where the gospel is exploding and people are being saved. Therefore, we should be informed about those areas. Our hearts should rejoice with them and our prayers should be filled with their names. But more than that, this should cause us to keep our own difficulties in perspective. Whatever sufferings we endure, whether directly for the sake of Christ or simply because we live in a, in a world stained with sin, it pales in comparison to what it could be. It pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters in the past have experienced and even what they are experiencing today through their martyrdom. Even then, isn't it interesting that the saints in heaven, the saints, uh, as it were, protected under the altar... Their response to God is not one of frustration or bitterness and anger that they gave up their life for the Lamb, but rather they still call out to Him as the holy and sovereign Lord. He is still good and righteous and true in their eyes. And all they ask is the vindication of their sacrifice. In other words, His return that their bodies might be raised from the dead even as Christ was, that they may dwell fully in His presence. How much more should we and experiencing difficulty and perhaps even persecution, not become hateful towards God, but rather increase in our faith and love for Him. Finally, it says, I think, uh, in, in this theme that runs through the book of Revelation, it says we should expect suffering. We should expect difficulties. We should expect persecution. There is a certain view of the end times that says God will pull all of His people out of the world before tribulation begins. Well, frankly, just from experience looking around, we know tribulation is already here and we are still here. But more than that, Revelation teaches the opposite. It is not that God removes His people from suffering. It is that He sustains them through that suffering. And I think the view that says that we want to be ejected out of this world before suffering comes betrays our own immaturity. Just this week, I, I read a quote that rang all too true. Uh, a pastor by the name of Matt Chandler said this, Everybody loves Pauline theology, but no one wants Pauline pain. You ever thought about that? I mean, Paul is the one who, who just unfolds and, and delights and rejoices in this view of not just the, the atoning work of Christ that brings us to God, but in God's absolute under sovereignty over all things. And yet, he is probably the, the, the disciple, the apostle that suffered the most. And, and often we like the salvation part. But Paul even rejoices in his sufferings because he knows they advance the gospel and the salvation that we cherish. Now you say, well, it's easy for a church channeler to say that, right? Well, it is easy for him. He's a pastor of a large church with a wife and young kids who recently had brain cancer and almost died. The man knows something about pain. He knows something about suffering. While we love the theology of salvation in the New Testament, we must also be prepared to embrace its theology of suffering. But the situation was just larger than suffering. It was larger than just martyrdom and persecution. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we see uh, Jesus specifically addressing these churches in chapters 2 and 3. John giving these seven churches uh, a specific message. And these seven churches represent all of God's people, not just in our day, or, uh, not just in John's day, but in our day as well. Now, these were real churches. 
that really existed. But the problems they face are ones that Christians have always faced at some point. What were they faced with? Well, these churches were threatened by false teaching, by persecution, by compromise with the surrounding paganism and idolatry and immorality in the culture, as well as by spiritual complacency. Now, not every church may face all those things, but I guarantee you every church somewhere in the world faces at least one of those things right now. In our own country, it's probably a compromise with the surrounding paganism and spiritual complacency. There is certainly, through uh, this explosion of media and access, also a temptation to embrace false teaching, even as we saw uh, in weeks past. Nevertheless, in all of these situations, it looks as if the church may be in a hopeless situation. But notice what John says in verse 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now we know from later, John tells us the lampstands are the churches themselves. And here, therefore, is the comfort that we have. Jesus not only knows our situation and what we face, the temptations before us, because He Himself faced all of these temptations and triumphed, more than that, He knows our situation intimately because He is in our midst. He is with us in the midst of these difficulties. He has seen for Himself His people, not as one who is far off, just reigning from heaven, but rather He is with His people in their very midst. Therefore, in chapter 2, Jesus can say, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Jesus is in the midst of His people, and He knows their situation. We are reminded of Psalm 46, which speaks of the city of God's people. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And this is where not just the comfort, but the confidence comes. We have comfort in knowing that God is not far off in our difficulties. He is not far off when we are tempted for His sake, but rather He is, he is here in our very midst, in our very presence, seeking to comfort us. But more than that, He has the power over even these things that would threaten to undo us. So Christ not only knows our situation, the situation of His people, but He is also sovereign over His people. And this is the second theme that we want to see in this passage and in the book of Revelation, that Christ is sovereign over His people. He is sovereign over His people. Having seen this vision of the lampstands and the one who stands among them, John now shifts his gaze to that one. He describes Christ Himself. Now understand... While we take the Bible literally at this church, we take it literally as it was written, as it was intended to be read. And so when you read this description of Christ, you will notice it is very different from the description that we have of Him at the end of the Gospels and in Acts after He is raised from the dead. Why is that? It's because it's, because for, it's this reason. Uh, in this passage, we're not meant to think this is what Jesus literally appeared like. In a minute, we're going to, to talk about uh, John seeing him with a sword coming out of his mouth. You're not going to get to heaven and have Jesus look like a circus performer holding a big sword in his teeth, okay? Uh, the, the point is not this is what he looked like as much as this is what he is. The, the very nature of Revelation is that there is symbolic language that is meant to convey spiritual truth. And that is what we see 
uh, in this description of Christ. These things speak to His nature and His character as King. Beginning in verse 13, John says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, again, thinking about the, the literature uh, of this book, when you read Revelation, one of the things that you will not find is many direct quotes from the Old Testament. But don't let that throw you. Because the book um, is not unconcerned with the Old Testament, just the opposite. It is a book dripping with allusions and wording and imagery from the Old Testament. So though it is not direct quoting all the time, it is nevertheless steeped in Old Testament imagery. In other words, if you're going to understand this book, you have to know the Old Testament well, or you get a study Bible that gives you all the cross-references. Okay? Uh, one of those two options. So when John says, here is one like a son of man, even then, he is getting that language from the Old Testament. In fact, if you were here, you remember several, several months ago, we saw that language from the book of Daniel. Uh, and in fact, that's where Jesus himself in the Gospels, as he picks up this son of man language, he is drawing from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is seen uh, coming from the ancient of days in coming before him in heaven as he has given total and eternal dominion of all the kingdoms on the earth, invested in this son of man as complete sovereign authority. And even here, John is drawing on the language to say that is Christ. He is that Son of Man who stands triumphant and supreme and sovereign over all the peoples of the world. Even the golden sash symbolizing His kingly status uh, clues us into this is the one who reigns. But notice how He reigns. John describes Him as having the hairs of His head being white like white wool like snow. Now in our culture, white hair is no good, is it? I mean, we sell Grecian formula. Yeah, that's right. Don't worry, I'm getting to it, Gene. We sell Grecian formula and hair dyes and everything to try and get that gray out, right? Well, go to a different culture and you might have a different response. Go to the East. Go to Asia. And what you will find is that if you have gray hair, you are treated with respect. You are revered. Why? Because white hair is typically a sign of age, which implies maturity and wisdom, right? Thank you. Well, that's at least what the Bible says. Proverbs says in chapter 16, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And again in chapter 20, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, just as an aside, I feel like I'm in something of a pickle because I'm young but have lots of gray hair. So I'm not sure what that means. Uh, but um, I'm not particularly strong either, so I'm in a, I'm in a real bind there. But, but here, Christ, Christ is pictured not merely with gray hair but with white hair with gleaming white hair. It is, it is like fresh snow and like clean wool. In other words, he stands with supreme wisdom. He stands with supreme experience and knowledge so that when he rules, every judgment he makes is right and good. There is no doubting that he is not a good and wise king over all the nations. More than that, John says his eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, there is in Christ a kind of piercing gaze that, that wells up from the purity of his own, his own person and being. A, a piercing gaze that sees through every facade that men could ever put before him, drilling down to the very intentions and desires of their soul. And when he sees 
that sin and wickedness. There is no escape from him. Christ is seen as having feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. The suggestion is that Christ is not one who has feet of clay. He is not fallible in any way. His character is in no way compromised, nor will it ever be. But rather, his feet are of a metal not only gleaming with purity, but having been refined down to its purest form, hard and powerful, so that even as he judges with wisdom, with righteousness, with a piercing gaze that goes to the intentions of the heart, he is also one with power who can stamp out and destroy those that would oppose him in sin. Finally, John says that when he spoke, his voice was like the roar of many waters. That was almost 11 years ago. Melinda and I celebrated our first anniversary at Niagara Falls. And we had, we had a lot of fun. We did all the touristy things uh, that we could. And uh, one of the things that, you know, you've seen Superman 2 and you see the falls and you see it on movies and stuff. You kind of get this idea. But, but it's nothing to actually being there. And it was amazing because even a mile away, and in the background, you still heard the thunder of the falls. It was amazing, the, just the amount of power coming down there. It was one thing to be on the maid of the mist and, and feel and hear the thunders. You're, you know, feeling a little bit too close, perhaps. Uh, but then when you're, you know, you're looking down at the flower gardens way away on the bus tour, and you're still in the background, you're talking and it's fine, but in the background there's still this, this, this low rumble that reminds you of the power that is not too far away. Likewise, when Christ speaks, there is no escape. There is no ignoring this king. He is powerful and effective even in his words. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, because he's God. He is God. It's interesting that the vision opens with an appearance of God the Father, but it immediately shifts to God the Son described even in the language used for God, the Father of God Himself. Even the language from Daniel 7, the description of Yahweh, the Lord God, who is the Ancient of Days, all of that language and imagery is now applied to God the Son, the Lamb who was slain and raised again. So He is God, and secondly, therefore, by definition, when He speaks, it is the Word of God that goes forward. And thus John says, it came. the words came out of His mouth, as a sharp two-edged sword. What's described that way? But the scriptures, the scriptures themselves. In other words, the risen Christ is pictured as one who is able to execute judgment against sin and wisely rule the nations because of the righteousness of his own character and the word that proceeds out of it. And what does John say about this Christ? In his right hand he held seven stars and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You read through the book of Revelation and there is an immense amount of wickedness and violence and sin and rebellion against the rule of Christ over all things. And often it is directed precisely at his people, his church. And yet here is this image of this all-glorious king in whom can be found no fault who is not just pure in himself, but is powerful over all things. And what does he hold secure in his right hand but his church? His church. Even then, his face radiating with the glory like the sun. If you look at the sun and gaze at it directly, you will not do so without suffering injury. 
And though even now we cannot bear to, to stand the gaze directly at the glory of Christ, nevertheless, even the illumination that He provides in our lives through His Word is sufficient to encourage our hearts and sustain us in our lives. In the end, what we see in Christ is not just a King who reigns over His people to protect them, but a King who reigns over every people to subject them. And as you read Revelation, one of the things that strikes you is the absolute sovereignty of God. Every outbreak of persecution against His people, every parade of rebellion before the Lamb, that all come to nothing because He is in control. Even now, He is restraining evil from destroying His church, everything that Satan would do if He could. In chapter 7, there is this complete number that stands before God, it's 144,000, which mathematically is simply 12 times 12 times 1,000. Each of these numbers within the book of Revelation signifies completeness, and they're multiplied by each other. And so it should come as no surprise, because just a few verses later, John speaks of the same group, and he says, it was a group that no one can number. And you're tempted to say, but John, didn't you just number them? Didn't you just count them? Didn't you just say it was 144,000? Yes, it is, but... That 144,000 is not meant to be individual people, but rather representative of a complete number, a perfect number, so that what stands before God is the fullness of His people, drawn from all time, from all nations, perfectly protected from spiritual harm for all eternity. Now what effect should that have on us? If nothing else, it should cause us to fall in worship to God. That's the very thing that John does. He falls in complete and utter worship to God. Whenever the Lamb makes an appearance, whenever He issues a judgment, whenever He does anything in the book of Revelation, people fall in worship. Knees bow. Faces go into the dust. That is always our primary response. But secondarily, it should give us a complete and utter confidence in Him as our King. If He is not just all-knowing, but all-powerful and all-wise. If, if He rules righteously in every decision and every deed, how, how can we not completely trust Him with our lives? And not just parts of it, not just the saving part, but the financial part and the family part and everything else that would, that would threaten to give us cause for concern or shake our confidence. We simply need to look to this image of Christ whether it's global wars or a crashing economy or something personal like sickness and disease, God is sovereign over all things and He is keeping His people safe from their ultimate foe, Satan and their own sin. Therefore, Luther was surely right and so are we as we sing. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever, forever. God is able to secure the spiritual place of His people, not just because He is sovereign over them, but because He also gives salvation to them. This is the last thing that we want to see. Christ is the Savior of His people. The Savior for His people. Many of you know I enjoy listening to music. I enjoy all, lots of different kinds of music. I enjoy contemporary Christian music. Some of it is really good, in fact. Some of it is on the rise in terms of good stuff being produced. And some of it, frankly, is really bad stuff too. Not just musically, but lyrically. Um, 
music that teaches poor theology. And then there are those songs that fall somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, they're, overall, they're right. They're on the right track, even if they miss something here or there. And one such song, at least in my opinion, is the song, I Can Only Imagine. Now, now, overall, the song captures, I think, well, the wonder and the glory of what it will be like to see Jesus face to face. But every time I hear this line, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Whenever I hear that line, I want to say, dude, guys, haven't you read the Bible? I mean, haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read about Isaiah and Ezekiel and even John in this passage? It is clear what happens when we see the glory of Christ. We don't, we're not dancing around. We're not worried about anything. Our face is on the ground. We are, we are out like a light. Isn't this what John says? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what happens when you encounter the living God. Because suddenly, all of reality snaps into focus. You realize not just who He is, but who you are in relationship to Him. And what that means is, you are nothing. You are nothing. This is why Isaiah says, I felt like I was coming apart. His very muscles were unraveling. His DNA was breaking apart at the seams of the, of the very smallest amount of who he was he was dissolving in the presence of this infinitely holy glorious god how come nobody writes a song about that i don't know but that was john's experience and john says the only thing that 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 saved him was that christ laid his hand on me saying fear not fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i am alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and Hades. Now what does it mean? Well, what, what, what does it mean that he's died and he lives forevermore? What does it mean that he's the first and the last? What does it mean that he has the keys of death and hell? Back in chapter 5, when we talk about this vision of heaven, John said that he saw the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who looked like one as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, the image is not meant to be as gory as it first sounds. It's not like this zombie lamb standing there with bloody and... No, no, no. It, it is a lamb who is standing. He's alive. But he looks as if he had been slain. In other words, he bears on himself the marks of having been killed. This is Jesus himself. As they sing, all of heaven sings, you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus offered up his life in place of his people. He died in the place of sinners bearing the judgment of God against them that they might be reconciled to him. And this brings us back even to earlier. The very first thing, what did John say? But I saw him with a long robe. The only people that wear a long robe in the Bible are the priests. The people that stand to make intercession between God and His people. And here Jesus is not just the king. He is also the supreme high priest. Because He has offered His own life as a sacrifice for sins. Friends, when we come to the realization of who Christ is and what He has done, when we truly grasp the significance of the gospel, though physically our bodies may not do it, spiritually our souls will be like John and we will say, I feel as if I was dead. 
because we realize that we are sinners deserving an eternal damnation. An eternal condemnation for our wickedness, for our rebellion, for our very offense before a holy God. And it is only Christ who can come and say, fear not because I am the first and the last. I am your eternal Savior who died for you and was raised forevermore, showing showing that God was not only pleased with my sacrifice, but that though physically you may die, spiritually you will live. More than that, physically you will live again one day, even as I do. Christ is the Savior King who triumphs over all of His enemies. It is no more clear than the book of Revelation. One thing from which we are saved is the horrific judgment that is to come. In chapter 19, John says this, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. That is Christ Himself. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then John says, And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead and, who, and all who were in it. Death and Hades gave up death, gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Think about just the horrific image of human souls being crushed under the wrath of God against sin like grapes in a wine press. Of Christ riding forth, gleaming white in purity and yet his robe dipped in blood of the destruction of sinners. Friends, there's a temptation to recoil at that, to even think, how, how, could, how could God even be like that? And the, the answer is this, that's how vile sin is. That's how absolutely horrific rebellion and wickedness before a holy God is. That's the, the due judgment that is coming. All who are not found in the Lamb all who are not found with their life hidden in His will suffer that fate. And yet for those who have embraced Christ as Savior and follow him, followed Him as Lord, John says this, For them I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. John says, on the last day we will have come full circle. We, we went from Adam and Eve of humanity walking with God in perfect fellowship in the cool of the garden to them claiming to be wise and revealing himself to be fools, not trusting the word of God but the word of the devil, bringing death and destruction through sin into this world. A never-ending conflict between God redeeming his people and Satan trying to bring them all to hell. And yet in the end, the lamb wins. All those who are with the Lamb win. And what they inherit is not just new life in a world still stained by sin, still corrupted with thorns and thistles and the potential for rebellion against God. No, what they inherit is a new heaven and a new earth. It's not just Eden. It is better than Eden because there is the Lamb who has triumphed for them over sin, death, and hell forever. Forever. the reward that is the reward not for what we do but for in whom we believe the Lord Jesus Christ therefore as we see this unfolding drama that God has been working together according to his wise plan what we see what we have seen even what we see today is that at the center stands one person God the Son made flesh Jesus Christ who in obedience to his Father, for the glory of his name, offered his life for sinners and was raised up to reign over all things forever. When we understand that, how can our prayer not be as John's in the final verses of this book? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word which leads us to your Son. We are thankful for the salvation that you grant through repentance for all who would see their sin as you see it and yet turn to Christ to receive the gift of salvation which they can never earn, which they don't deserve, but comes as an act of love from you. God, we marvel at the glory of Christ and we pray that as we continually see Him, the gospel truths will be, will be continually driven down into our minds and our hearts, changing our desires and our, and our wants, that we might increase in our love for you and for your Son. And God, with that increased love will come an increased joy in this life as we seek to obey all your commands. God, bless us this morning. Having heard your word, God, let us rejoice in Christ and in him alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.